HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Delia Villader. We'll talk to Delia about building and running a winery in Napa, women in wine, and a lot more. We'll taste the 2017 Villader Black Label Red Blend for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Delia Villader born in Argentina, made education a priority. She spent her formative years in Europe, bringing her PhD from the Sorbonne to the U.S. to further pursue business and wine studies at MIT, University of California, Berkeley, and Davis. Delia got into the wine business in the early 80s and was one of the first women winemakers in the Napa Valley. She is now the president and CEO of the now multi-generational Viadere Vineyards and Winery on Howell Mountain. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Delia. Thank you for having me. Now, due to COVID-19, we're doing a remote broadcast via Zencaster, which is a remote platform. You are at the winery in Napa Valley? Correct. Okay. All right. So, Delia, I want you to give everyone a little background, a little context of who you are and how you got here. Um, you traveled the world to get to Napa, pretty much. Can you give us a brief background on your journey in life and wine that got you currently to your own winery, Viadere Vineyards and Winery? Well, I traveled the world literally uh, all my life. Okay. Not, on, not only for the wine business. My father was in the diplomatic corp, so we would move a lot. Okay. And uh, that already prepared me. The advantages of that is that I speak six languages, all of them with an accent, but I do fluently speak six languages. So um, 
So wait, when you say you speak six languages, I assume one of them is French. One of them is French. Spanish, and you say you Italian, have an accent. German. What's what's the accent on a French? My accent on the French is somebody that speaks fluent Spanish. So they think I'm from Toulouse. <laughs> okay. I was just curious about that. All right. So six languages. Go ahead. And uh, actually, uh, it's it's helpful because it allows me to read philosophy, which is my passion before wine in the original language. So it's, now you got your doctorate in philosophy, right? Correct. I okay. had a doctorate in philosophy from Sorbonne, and I transferred to the United States as a PhD. Via UC Berkeley. Delia, that's pretty heady stuff, philosophy. All right, continue. <laughs> it's pretty heavy stuff, but it's actually a way of being, uh, a way of thinking. My right. concentration was on logic, so you use logic usually every day. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> Some people may not, but most people do. So it is helpful for business and it's helpful for uh what I set out to do in the States. Uh, I so came you, as a student. Right. So really, uh, I didn't really know anything about uh, winemaking or wine growing. It was an opportunity that actually was presented to my father. And I came with the idea that perhaps this was the break I was looking for. I was recently divorced and I had all the kids with me. And wow. I thought... Um, well, what are we talking? The early eighties, very early eighties. Yes. Okay. Uh, 1984 actually. Okay. And, uh, I, I presented a plan, a business plan to my dad. I didn't know much about wine growing, but what I don't know, I can always hire a consultant for that. I always knew. So I set up to call consultants, actually, from all over the world. Um, I studied and, and requested help from a lot of friends. I had a lot of friends in France that own wineries for several generations, and I have some friends in New Zealand that actually came and helped out because um, the place where I started is a very st steep, rocky mountain and very steep is a 32-degree slope. It's the same as the streets of San Francisco. Wow. And, and uh, pretty much when you're going up, let's say, Taylor Street towards California, right? you see the, the lines for the tram. It, it's exactly four feet apart, which is the, the distance between vine rows. Really? So, <laughs> That's interesting. You get, you get your Stairmaster right in the vineyard every day. Can you, can you back up for a second? Your dad owned the land or he purchased the land that you're talking he, about? He, he gave me the seed money to purchase the land. Okay. Um, and w what was, you know, what was that moment or when was that decision that you decide, you know, with all the traveling, all the education, all the exposure from the family, that the direction was going to be wine? I mean, what what was that? Uh, my father was always very succinct and very correct in uh, presenting things. He, after hearing what I had come up with, he says, after all the money I poured into your education, <laughs> all you want to become is a farmer. Oh, boy. <laughs> he had to pay for all my degrees. The, the, the guilt trip, right? <laughs> totally. Oh, boy. But, but um, I, as a dad, hear me out. I think this will be an ideal place to raise a family in the ideal situation because I'll have them with me 24-7. And they will be close to nature in an ideal place. And uh, So that was the vision. The vision was the if vision you do that, you could be with your family as a single mom. You're yep. kind of one with nature, great place to raise the kids. Then... How does it morph into the wine thing, which requires money, planning, and work? That was uh, 
the place was in Howell Mountain. It was offered to my father as a as a possibility for a, a house for a residence, ah. and I thought uh, all the valleys planting to grapes, and they they're beginning. It was a a, a time that the industry wasn't that uh, fashionable. Let's right. put it that way. Or prevalent. And, or prevalent. It was really small number of wineries and uh but we all had heard about uh bob mundavi so it was it was integral in in all the decisions the help that he provided he had an open door policy in which anybody that wanted to know or participate in any of their trials could come in so it was a community in that sense. It was definitely a community, and he was always welcoming, especially young entrepreneurs like me that wanted to start. Uh, so you wanted to start in the wine business, and what are you planning to do? Uh, oh, good girl. And how are you going to do that? <laughs> well, I'm, you bring something up, and you know this is a question I had a little later on, but we can talk about it now. I mean, talk to me about being a woman in business, being a woman in the wine business, which, you know, you just described in its infancy and in the early 80s, you know, which is certainly, you know, a different time than now. I mean, we've come a long way, but it sounds like, you know, at least Mondavi opened his arms what about everything else, you know, working with banks, farmers, consultants, and all that? Tell me what it was like being a woman, you know, back then when there were very few. <laughs> well, perhaps my advantage was that I wasn't born here, so I didn't find out that there was supposedly is a glass ceiling somewhere. Uh, right. I never saw it. I never even imagined it. So that was an advantage, uh, sure. perhaps, of not having been born here. Uh, I, my parents. So you sort of didn't give a crap. It's like, I, I don't know how you do it. Here's how I, I think. Here's how I do it. Right. Right. And I, it's just by temperament. I will work hard and I will put all my intuition and all my, everything, all of me into it. And I'll give it my best and I'll figure it out. But along and, the way with all of that. Was being a woman a disadvantage for you to grow and advance the business? Perhaps uh, if I would have thought differently. But uh, to me, it's always been in my, to my benefit. I, I was very young. Uh, right. I had an accent. I had lots of kids that were with me all the time. Uh, <laughs> Can't yell at a woman I, with kids, right? <laughs> And if you can think about it, uh, it it was people didn't know what where to put me. Where were my classification? <laughs> what was appropriate? Uh, but I was kind of. I've always been a happy person. I've always been very optimistic, and so that I've projected. Always, and I think it projected. Because usually uh, people open up and we're extremely helpful. And so for let me, that, let me just, let me sort this out for a second. So a guy back in those days who just looked at women, you know, totally different, <laughs> he was so perplexed by you because of the way you presented yourself. Is it fair to say that? Yes. Like he just, he couldn't take you down. He couldn't push you around. He didn't understand you. So he just, you know, went along. Is that fair? Yes, I just went along and... Good strategy. Well, uh, remember... It's really who you were. Um, it's really who I am. And I, my emphasis has always been in logic. I'm very logical, so... Right. Uh, you think, therefore, you are. I, I actually compose myself and what I say and how I present things in a way that I will get the answer I'm looking for. Right. You 
you trained yourself. I mean, you you were in those times. You were a very interesting person, let alone woman. Um, do you, when you look back, I mean, I'm sure we could do a whole show on this, but you know, <laughs> tell me some of the differences of Napa in the '80s, you know, versus now. I mean, what are the things that come to you first, good or bad? Uh, well, it was a much smaller community, and it was really much more of a community. Right. And because I was kind of in exile in a way, I kind of fell in, or fit in more with what we used to call uh, the French mafia at that time. And, Which, uh, tell me what that was. Uh, most of the winemakers that, uh, or the families that established themselves in Napa and that were coming from France. Really? Uh, most of the people from Domaine Chandon and uh, most of the people, the previous owners of Ladera that were the previous right. owners of La Mission. Well, and they we were, were there then. They were there and then. Yes. And then so you found a, uh, a yeah. comradeship with them. Yeah, connection with Claude Duval because uh, Bernard Portier, French, married to a Chilean, Elia. And, right. uh, and then Valeria and Augustine Sr., he knows. Uh, at that time, they didn't even have Quintessa, but uh, they had Franciscan. So it, it was right. a number of people in the, my very, very close friend, uh, uh, now called Dalla Valle. And right. it, it, you know, we had, a, of course, in Mondavi, uh, at that time it was at Opus One, uh, Jean-Vierre Janssens. Sure, she's, she's been on the show. Yes. So we, our kids were kind of the same age, very right. close. So we grew up celebrating the French traditions for Christmas. And uh, right. uh, the kids grew up uh, more in a European background right. and, and type of consideration with respect to alcohol consumption and i am going to get in trouble no you're not well uh well i used to tell my kids when they were little what we do at home stays at home and please don't tell anybody that you can actually taste wine at home because mommy is going to be put in jail well, I guess legally you had to be careful, but, but I mean, in Italy and in France, I mean, that's the culture, but, all, but different laws. But trust me, the Mondavis were doing the same thing. Exactly. So, and my biggest, biggest mentor was Margaret. So definitely we, we got so, very, very close. So the differences were smaller community. Um, you hooked in with a certain group. Now, obviously, it's much bigger. You know, maybe the community is broken into different communities or even dissolved, um, and it's definitely more diverse, right? Yes, it's more diverse, uh, which is wonderful. But there is also less uh, in terms of communication, and this was before COVID, also. In terms of people living here, uh, I came and established first my residence, and then I built the winery. Right. So it it was uh, different yeah. in that sense. Most of the owners and winemakers lived around or very close to the wineries, and we would connect one on one very often. Right. Well. You know, talking about diversity, and I want to pick your brain on this. Um, you know, Napa's not famous for being one of the more diverse wine communities. You know, in light of the pandemic, which we talked about, and, you know, there's just been months and months of protests, and that's been fired up even today with the Brianna Taylor thing. Um, I mean, can, can Napa Valley, the people of Napa Valley... Can they do anything to create more inclusion or diversity or equality in your t tell me how you're doing it and how you can get other people and what they're doing we're We're very uh community oriented I'm part of a of a association is the Napa Valley Vintners right and we definitely 
we're here to protect and enhance the Napa Valley and promote that. That's also we're a marketing organization, but also protect and promote. And there is a lot that we do for the community, not only for the health, the housing of our workers, the health and specifically the education. Um, I think education is the key to everything and to uh, create opportunities for that diversity. Having said that, remember Napa is in California. It really reflects demographically what the state of California is all about. Uh, which is? Which is a, close <clears throat> to a third Hispanic. Uh, so the Napa Valley, the Napa County is probably very much in proportion to the state of California. We have a lot of Hispanic people. So uh, it's not the same, not to say that we don't welcome people of any other diverse groups. Uh, in lieu of the protests, we've been uh, trying to look at something that will perhaps as a token or as an opportunity uh, the Napa Valley Vendors decided to grant a scholarship and pay for it every year up to a million dollars to uh, United Negro uh, College Foundation, College which has been given scholarships and opportunities to people of color, but because we are in California and of course, we would like people to be uh, taken care of in the wine business in Napa Valley. 40% uh, of those scholarships from the United Negro Foundation were given to Hispanics. Right, so just because of the reflection of the population. Because of a reflection of the population. Right. It's not because there isn't a, a welcoming mat. Uh, as a matter of fact, slowly... And surely, people get attracted to the wine business. It, it's from one way or another, through the restaurant business or through the sommelier business. Or through, right. You know, people get attracted. Uh, it's, it's happening. Well, stay on that note because, you know, I've been to a bunch of the Napa wine auctions and, you know, they raise literally millions. And that goes back to health uh, uh, and education 98%. services, you yes, know, which I, I know you're intimately involved. But here's here's where I want to take this, because I think you talked about, you know, how the industry, you know, is involved with the community. When you look specifically at your business, which is wineries, wine hospitality, um, wine making, all of that. Do you see enough women in important positions? Do you see enough um, uh, black people in it, Latino, even indigenous? Um, do, you, do you feel that it's, it's where it should be? Um, I wouldn't be the one to decide where it should be. Uh, but I definitely see people, see that we've done a lot of uh, advances, given opportunities. I, I actually put my money where my heart is. And from the get-go, being an immigrant, I totally understood and fluent in Spanish helps. Right. Uh, Sure. I proposed to all of my workers that they needed to learn English, and I didn't. I didn't obligate them. I proposed it because I had a plan that if they uh, were willing to take the sacrifice or make the sacrifice to go to a high school at night after work, I would pay them for taking English lessons. And right, it would the, be another skill or tool in their toolbox. It would totally be another skill because if they understood English, I could send them to the local junior college to get computer uh, skills. They right. could learn how to do other things. And 
surely it wasn't it was a voluntary uh, and also an, an honor system. They will present to me how many hours they attended and their certificates for English proficiency and this and that and the other, and I would pay them extra um, to complete that. And the ones that wanted to continue, they would uh, continue going to the junior college and they would go on to further themselves and become uh, more skilled they not attain a better job. Yeah, uh, that's a great uh, incentive and offering on your part. It's a, the incentive. You need to card. understand yes. what it takes to offer it, and you know you did. And you need to understand what every parent wants. Every parent wants the best for their kids. So, so think my, like a parent on this one. Think like a parent on this one. Good so what you. I offered was scholarships to their kids. It, instead of a, a bonus, I would give them a scholarship. That if their kids maintained a 4.0 grade average, I would pay for their education. They could choose where they wanted to go. Wow. And many took that opportunity. And I have graduated a couple already Good from med school, from oh. business school. And uh, that's, for me, the power of education. Give them a chance. They'll take it. They'll work hard. And then you'll see it blooming. Um, well, that, that it sounds like, you know, a great thing and certainly keep that going. Um, I want to talk to you about your winery and your wines. But first, I want to understand something about you, because I think I was on your mailing list 20 <laughs> years ago. I mean, I'm very familiar with the wines, cut my teeth in Napa, you know, so this is sort of easy and old school for me. But what I don't know about you is you're sort of this red wine-obsessed person, you know, <laughs> with a love for Cab Sauv and Cab, Cab Franc and every Cab other... Frank. Cap yes. Franc and every other Bordeaux blending grape, I think, except for Merlot. Um, tell me how this is. This an Argentinian thing? Is this the land dictated that you know you're a red winemaker, basically? I am. I am very much a, a red wine snob in a way because I, I. It's very difficult to grab my attention with white wine. It's not that I don't like it. I do like certain type of white wines but i prefer what like Montrachet? what do you like in white quickly yes bur burgundy okay and, and uh it's it's uh it's a personal choice you know oh sure like <laughs> all right so tell me so continue on i interrupted didn't mean to the yes. the the you know the the grasping of red and the love for it it is really something I, I, like I said, I didn't know much about it, but I, I grew up in also in kind of a European um, household. Uh, right. Both my both my parents were European, so it it was in a way uh, I had pretty much my palate kind of decided uh, and only needed to learn how to express it. Uh, that's, that's the part. It's, it's something it's very easy to me to communicate to people that get, they say, oh, I don't know anything about wine. I don't know anything. And I said, well, uh, can you sing? And, and, and it's like, yes, I can sing. Well, it's the same with wine. You don't need to be Pavarotti to know how to uh, enjoy wine. You like it or you don't like it. And you come with everything. You come equipped with everything that is needed. You don't need to know more. And it, it, it was a question of once I started tasting and particularly blending, playing with the blends. That's what really got me. 
and made me really passionate about the discovery. The, the new, every year is a new beginning, is a new blend, a new possibility, a new you, set of coordinates. You have to back up for a second because, yes, Napa Valley is, you know, really known for Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, blending mm-hmm. that. You took Cabernet Franc and even Petit Verdot, you know, to the forefront of your winery. Um, those were personal choices. You liked, you know, how they blended. You liked their characteristics. You know, you listen, when you look at every winery, they don't, you know offer wines um, with the type of blends and blending that you do? How did you get to to that? It's personal choice and personal craziness. But remember that my palate was international. Right. The uh, five Bordeaux blending grapes. The five Bordeaux blending grapes. The only reason I cannot grow Merlot in Napa Valley is because it's a very finicky, difficult grape to grow on a hillside that is so rocky. But I grew Merlot in Tuscany when I had the vineyard in Tuscany for about right. eight years. I was next door to Ornelia, so I did grow Merlot. Right. I mean, Massetto's a great, uh, yes, <laughs> a great uh, Merlot-based wine. It is a Petrus, great Merlot. Yes. all those guys. Um, before we take a break, and however long it takes, I want you to just give me a little uh, primer, a little primer on Howell Mountain, because your vineyard is located on Howell Mountain. So just take, you know, a little time um, to tell me about the soils you're working with. You talked a little about the terrain and it's hilly, but get into that a little more. The climate, um, we talked about the grapes, um, you know, we can go back on that. Um, just tell me, because there's a lot of AVAs, obviously, in Napa, and even within the AVAs, there's a lot of microclimes. Tell me what you're, you know, dealing with on Howell Mountain. Well, uh, we are technically not in the AVA because, it ha- as it happens, the AVA was created before the vineyard was mm-hmm. planted. Uh, so we were not asked to participate. I'm glad you cleared that up. And... But nonetheless, uh, the AVA starts at 1,400 feet, and we are at 1,300 feet. So a stone throw from the AVA. So Uh, right there, tell me what altitude does to wine. Definitely helps. And and the whole whole vineyard layout, it was uh, especially designed and calculated to bring the best of nature to your advantage. We calculated the direction of the wind. We calculated which way the sun sets and how it will um, project. We planted vines going up and down the hill with no terracing at a time. Now the up and down is versus going across, right? Exactly. Normally they would have planted a vineyard this steep contour and because it is so steep you would have left banks completely uh, exposed to erosion we now, planted with soil now what about soils i mean what what what's was left on the mountain soil wise what are you <laughs> planting in what am i planting in is uh, rocky is she a rock red it rock is... very uh, red very high in iron content, volcanic, of course. Uh-huh. Uh, most of it is of volcanic origin. Uh, although there's, you know, it's California. It's been moving around in a few <laughs> thousands <good>. of years. <laughs> so we have, because we, we uh, I put tunnels, I put the winery underground. Right. Uh, we were able to really see the composition of the soil it's mostly a very hard rock rhyolite and uh in between is volcanic tufa which is a little bit uh the kind that breaks in your hands right. uh, and 
in between all of that, we have basalt, which is not, it's found much, much deeper. So that came up throughout the millennia when, you know, California is dancing, right. as we always do about 400 times a year. <laughs> what uh, does that mean the roots struggle? Because yes, it's not, much. it sounds dry and it's not, you know, loamy, soily, sandy. So no, what does that create? Not. Does that create a mountain small berry? Uh, creates a mountain small berry. And for that, I created a very small vine. It's actually ah. closer to the ground. Uh, it's a combination of what you would find in Bordeaux, closer spacing, and you, what you would find in Burgundy, closer to the ground. Right, because, because of your circumstance. Because of the circumstances, what we were trying to do is get the canopy, protect the clusters of grapes at the peak hours, noon hours. The way the shade, the canopy shades, protects right. the, the clusters. So your canopy man management plays to the way the vines are set up. Are set up. To inhibit growth, protect all of that. Exactly. And the clusters are hanging much closer to the rocky soil. Ah. Be uh, that's one of the reasons why most of the guys have to pick on their knees. You, you cannot stand up. You just so go, oh, it's very low. Now so I that's why I said it's burgundy, more burgundian. Right. I know the answer to this, but I want you to tell everyone... Um, because of where you are and because of the soils and how you plant, you have a smaller berry. Mm -hmm. You know, what are yeah. the characteristics of your grapes, you know, versus, you know, a bench grape, say, in Rutherford or something? Well, the vines actually translate what they find in the soil. And here they have much more iron in the soil and much more minerals in the soil. So you will find Powell Mountain because of the exposure and the extreme characteristics of the mountain right. will have much more concentration and much more towards a, a plum or a cassis black so fruit. Intensity and a dark black fruit, for sure. Yes, that's typical of this uh, area. Now, on the climate front... Are you dealing with more wind? You're obviously dealing with more yes. sun. You know, what else? I mean, it's cool at night, hot during the, you know, what, what is the climate fairly predictable and consistent generally or no? Well, we are farmers, so we deal with things we cannot control or predict. The weather right. has been changing and it has been uh, turning uh, what we are afraid most is the heat spikes during the season. And heat spikes mean exactly that. When the heat goes like yesterday, we were in the 80s at the, at the noon hours. At night, we go down to 50. Wow. And this weekend, we're going to go on a heat spike again to 100 degrees at the noon hours. So those those this coming weekend? Yes, this coming weekend. Wow. Late September. Uh, so that's you can't deny climate change there. You can well, you can't deny that climate it's it's is changing. It it is uh something is happening because the extremes are getting to be a little bit more pronounced. Right. Um, Delia, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Delia Viader from uh, her own winery, Viader. Um, Delia, when we come back, I want to talk to you specifically about your wines, you know, some of your practices, what you're doing out in the field and in the cellar, um, and a few other things. So you are listening to The Grape Nation. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and we'll be right back. <music> Thank you. 
This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Bin subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious, single-origin spices, cold-pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard-to-find recipe staples. You can also get both each month with the full Bend to Table box subscription. Learn more at bendtotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month and Bend to Table will donate $10 to HRN. We're back. We're back with my guest, Delia Villadere. Delia is the proprietor of her own winery, Villadere. She's been in the Napa Valley since the 80s. And Delia, along with her son, Alan, make wines. Um, we'll talk about the wines in a minute, Delia. But talk to me about um, vineyard practices. You know, I, I see you are Napa Green certified for winery and land. Um, tell me what that is and what you had to do to get there. Uh, it's definitely uh, by nature. I live here. I lived here all my life. All my kids grew up here. And my house, my window is directly across the vines. <laughs> so there is always been a very front and center, um, this holistic approach about uh, keeping in making sure that there is uh, no pesticides, there, there is no uh, anything negative that you will cause harm to the environment or to other people. I, I wanted to rest assured that the dogs could just run around and, and my kids and grandkids can run around and go and near harvest um, start eating grapes particularly near harvest when they're they're so sweet just they, pick them and eat them without worrying they about pick pick them and eating eat them and there is no worries that you know other than too many grapes <laughs> right so is it fair to say that this sounds like it resembles organics yes we were certified organic for okay. the first 11 years so you're then practicing we, that in the field. Definitely, um, from the very get-go, because it, it was important to us. I was raising my kids, and I definitely did not want to harm them in any way, in any now there's possible a, way. There's a next thing to that, and, you know, because you are there and you raise your family and you plan to be there, um, you want the soils to be alive the way you want your kids to be alive and grow. Um, do you think about regenerative farming? I mean, are you forced to that? How do uh, you? We hand- tried. Yes, we tried. Uh, also, for another ten years, we tried uh, uh, biodynamics, and it, it is. We adopted Napa Green because it allows us to do organic biodynamic and sustainable organic so we adapted a little bit of this a little bit of that whatever was successful of every one of the programs that we were part of wasn't a hundred percent sustainable in our in our particular situation for example when we were fully biodynamic it was great for the soil, but the younger vines were dying. 
it is extremely um, time consuming and the vines, when they're growing up, it's like a child go- growing up. You need the nutrients. Otherwise, right. you're not going to grow strong and, and fruitful. And the timing for biodynamics worked for the soil, but it didn't work fast enough to give the nutrients to the plants at the time that they were actually needing them. Right. And and I didn't want to use synthesize, so uh, any other chemical. So we had to kind of adapt the organic and the biodynamic in the Napa Green program. It allowed us to to do a little bit of everything uh, with a holistic approach in keeping, you know, the the use of any kind of chemical uh, right. to the minimum. And to that, my son took it even to the next extreme because he has, now that the tech uh, wave has also invaded the, the, the industry, he has sensors and sensors of sensors a little bit everywhere right in the palm of his hand. So he knows exactly how much and or how very little does he need to irrigate or does he need to do uh, a, a spraying of some sort he doesn't want to overdo in right. water or in uh, product to the vine so it, it's it's very precise all of a sudden it became very very precise and adapted to our circumstances it's since we do not have any any clay whatsoever it's mostly rock and almost sandy loam right um, there is need for irrigation at a specific time in the cycle of the growing vine but we have perfected the timing to right. give absolutely the bare minimum. It's funny you say that because when we were talking earlier, when you took over the property, you basically had to rely on instinct and nature when you walked the property on how to plant, where to plant, what to plant. You know, now everything is so data-driven. It's crazy. And, you know, God bless <laughs> Alan for taking advantage of that. But, you know, the reality is he ain't doing bad and you didn't do bad either without it. So, you know, you take everything you work with. Tell me about um, seller practices. You know, obviously you take an approach out in the fields where you don't want any chemicals. Please tell me you don't go into the cellar and schmutz up all the wines. You Absolutely know. not. It, we're kind of non-interventionist and try to. Uh, we took the whole year to create this beauty of a fruit. Uh, we don't want to mess it up in the cellar. Right. Definitely. Uh, farmers first. Farmers first, and that's where the wine is made. In the cellar, all we're trying to do is just shine the light at the best of that season. Uh, so Alan is, is, you know, making the wine. What do you and him have a different style or approach? <laughs> you know, has that been a fight? Has it become obvious, you know, to the drinker? Just give me a quick take on that. Uh, I don't think it has become obvious uh, because we solved uh, very logically uh, I created Viadera as a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc with a high proportion of Cabernet Franc, but also with the idea of a classic Bordeaux blend. And when he came on board and he was promoted (laughs) to uh, full-time winemaker, uh, he had been helping me since he was six or seven years old. Right, so, so he, he knew everything. <laughs> he, he knew more or less how mom works. Right. Um, and uh, he was promoted. So I, I, we came to an understanding that he had free range to create his own blend. And that's how Viadera Black Label came about. 
Now I have a black label in front of me in a few minutes, you know, we're going to drink that. I actually just opened it to let it breathe. So instead of letting him screw around with your stuff, you let him make his own stuff. Right. Because he needs to have his his own voice. Uh, He needs to be able to put his own artistry and express it. I don't want him to do what I do. I don't want him to copy Delia, you're a a good mommy. You let your kids get their own space. Let's talk about the wines. You know, there's a handful of wines. We kind of mentioned them, but let's sort of tick off the list. The the sort of flagship legacy wine is the Viadere, the one that you made. And that is Cab Sauv and Cab Franc. What kind of percentages through the years of Cab Franc? And it's only those two grapes? Is only those two grapes, only the two caps, and with as much in some vintages, as much as 45, 49% of Cabernet Franc. Wow. All right. And then the next wine is, I guess, say the black label? The black label, yes. All right. And that's kind of an interesting blend. Tell me about that, Alan's (laughs) creation, right? It is Alan's creation, and he threw everything at it except the kitchen sink. Uh, he put he put Cabernet and Syrah. And I said, okay, uh, that's an interesting blend. It's not a Bordeaux blend. No. <laughs> and but it's been, it, it's been done and it's being done. And it's being done. And then he said, no, but I, I, I'm not happy with the blend. I, I need to add some more. And he did his internships as when he was going to college. In Argentina, and he fell in love with Malbec. I did not have planted Malbec at the very So beginning. Alan was instrumental in planting Malbec vines? He brought, yeah. Okay. brought Malbec from Argentina. So we had 174 vines at the very, very beginning. It took about 14 years to have a reasonable crop to be able to use it. And uh, he added it to his wine, of course. Okay. <laughs> the black and label. along with... Cab Franc, of course. And you wouldn't let little, you wouldn't let him little, leave the house unless he put some Cab Franc. Well, on. we we both love Cab Franc. It's it's very special. We have a clone that is uh, find finds itself at very much at home in this hillside. It produces Great. a very intense and a very uh, dense Cabernet Franc. But so jump to your Cab Franc elegant. wine. You make a Cab Franc wine called Dare. Yes, this is a kind of our second label, and we dare to make a single varietal Cabernet Franc when people were not yet kind of uh, seduced by Cabernet Franc. There was only a handful of guys in the valley, right? Like Larkin and the other guy, I forgot, that were making Cab Francs. True? Very, very few, very yeah. few would even consider Cab Franc other than as a blender. Right, so that's that's the dare, and then, of course, you couldn't settle on that, so you made no. a predominant <laughs> petite verdot called V. That was when really the wine bug got me. Uh, that's a blend that I created in '98. Wow, it's uh, been around. Very challenging, yeah, very challenging year, and uh, it, you know, it's it's very interesting because I served as a bridge between. French winemakers and uh, Napa Valley winemakers for a long time, and I used to tease them a lot that about the Petit Verdot that actually we uh, mature it in the vineyard and we would get it to full maturity. So I decided to use it as the main component of the blend, and I added Cabernet Sauvignon just to make it drinkable. Very nice. And then the final wine is sort of an homage wine, and the name refers to that. What is it, homenaje? Homenaje, yes. There's something that Alan wanted to do uh, as a tribute. Homenaje means tribute. Right. And at our 30th year of uh, production, he finally came up with a couple of barrels of something really special uh, that he felt it will be a tribute to his grandfather. The, the one that put the seed the, money. The guy the who got everything going. Got uh, everything going, and there was actually the main uh, the main figure in his life uh, 
my father was here every other month with my mom. They would uh, visit and these were their only grandchildren for the longest time. My brothers didn't have children until much later. So. All right. All right. Uh, so I want everyone to know that, you know, we've been talking about these wines and these are, you know, limited production. This is a premium, you know, line of wines. Um, you know, these are very fruit driven wines, which are a good reflection of Napa, you know, so I hope people go out and take an interest in these, buy them, Google them and all of that. But just understand, you know, we're talking, you know, about a premium wine and, um, you know, I think Delia explained, you know, what it takes to get there. Um, Delia, we have less than 10 minutes left, and there are two things that I really want to do. Um, the last thing is to taste the black label and talk about it and evaluate it. But before that, I do a thing called the wine list, and I ask all my guests five questions. Everyone gets asked the same five questions. Um, don't dwell on them. Um, People are interested in, you know, what you're drinking. I post these on our social media sites. So we're going to go right to the first question. The first question is, what is Delia Viador drinking now? What's in your fridge? What are you tasting? What's on the table? Give me what's, a couple of wines. What's on the table? Uh, for lunch, we opened a 2012 Viador. And just to try it and we always do that because so you're always tasting your wines go ahead we're always tasting our wine and specifically because i don't have i sold out of that wine so i find it in the website and i buy it wow. and i buy it back <laughs> so we can taste our babies there you go so you're Welcome tasting back. you're tasting older vintages of your wine anything else I, Older vintages of the of the wines every day, and I we share with everybody, so everybody can have a little bit of an opinion, and they can dissect. It, it's very interesting when when they try to pitch my son style versus my style, and they can't because in the end, uh, we make it's via there. We make the wine from the place. And we try. Right. The place is always going to be what it is. It's winning. The place All right. We got a next question. Your favorite wine and food pairing. Is there anything from a kid as an adult, something you love, not something you necessarily eat every night, every week, every month, but what's the great Delia Viader wine pairing? Oh, we do very often uh, this. Colorado lamb chops, the little lollipops. Mm, uh, those with? are so perfect in the in the grill. Uh, with any red wine, actually. Okay. So a good grilled, you know, baby lollipop lamb chop with a good, you know, full broth, you know, whether it's the Viador proprietary, yeah, the, the black, black label. label. Yep. It will go great with the black label that you have. On All the right. Glass. Tell me your favorite wine restaurants or bar. I guess, you know, the best way to answer that, and you don't have to leave anybody out or you're not favoring anyone, but tell me any wine restaurants or bars in the area that have a great great selection, have a great vibe, have a good wine knowledge or welcoming, you know, cause people like to hear from you of, Hey, if I'm in Napa, you know, <laughs> Delia says, I mean, do, can you name anything? Uh, other than the usual, I, I hope that they do come back. Uh, we have uh, a few normal places, hangouts, here in the valley. Uh, Tell me a couple. Uh, we go to a simple one, um, R&D Kitchen, for example. Okay. Or even That's a good one. Farmstead in St. Helena has a good farm to table. Yes. And uh, they also have very nice wines. They happen to be very food-oriented. So, it, I mean... Those are the type of places I was hoping you would say. That's, those are good answers. Just... Go no further. <laughs> All right. Tell me favorite all-time wine. 
I tell all my guests when I initially put this question on the list, I was trying to prompt you to tell me the rarest, most expensive wine you ever yeah. drank. That's not really the question anymore. Yeah. Tell me a wine that is so important to you. It changed the way you thought about wine. It was the first time you had something. It influenced how you made. What's an important wine to you? Well, it's, it's an important wine, something that has a certain personality that comes through. And it has happened with, yes, many important wines like Cheval Blanc. Of course, it is always, it always elates me to, to find the Cabernet Franc aging so well. Right. So you, when you answer that, Cabernet Franc plays into, uh, I totally get that. I should have thought that. Um, so like a Cheval Blanc or Cabernet Franc. Like a Cheval Blanc. I, yep. I, I love that that density but that floral note that delicacy it's it's, yep. it's a certain ethereal elegance that a wine can have because that's what i try to infuse in my wines they're they're in perfect harmony i don't want to make the wine the main attribute of, of a meal it's, it's just background music so I hope one of the results of this show is that we've excited and got people curious about Cobb Franc and wines that have Cobb Franc. Um, and that's definitely expressed through your favorite wine. Last question, and this may be hard from you, but I'm going to make you work because you make premium wines. <laughs> but if you had to recommend to my kids in their 20s or some of your kids, uh, cheap wines. If you had to recommend wines for them to go out and buy for 15, 20 bucks because they don't want to bring crappy supermarket wines to a party or a dinner or as a gift and they're not spending $40, recommend a red and a white. You could go category like Muscadet or Chinon <laughs> or whatever. What, what I'm challenging you, what comes to your mind for really value driven red and whites? An excellent value driven. Does it have to be US? Because no, 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 anything, anything. Yeah. Just keep close to the price. Claude de los Siete, definitely as a red. Okay, a good Malbec. one. Is a Malbec from Argentina that actually in the Chevrolet. That's exactly what I'm with. looking for. Usually the red is harder. You got that out of the way, but you're not a big white drinker. So what would no, you say I'm for not a, a big white? white drinker? And, and Claude de los Siete is probably around $25 at the most. Perfect. And uh, a white, I'm not a white drinker, so I usually will drink Sauvignon Blanc. Okay, that, that's always a good value as a category, so I'm going to take that. All right, we're running out of time, but I want to do this. Every week we taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip this week. Delia was nice enough to send me a bottle of the 2017 Viadere uh, Black Label. That's Allen's Blended Wine. Um, quickly tell me a little about this wine. We just got it out of the bottling line. Really? So I, I hope it's, it's, it's our newest release, but it hasn't been released yet. Uh, so I, I hope you enjoy it. And like I said, it will go perfect with uh, so this is. Lamb. Lollipop. <laughs> that was my last question, but this this is Capsov Malbec Petite Verdot. Yeah, it's Capsov Syrah, Syrah, and then a pinch of Malbec and a pinch of Capron, just to hold it all together. Okay, yeah, because I don't get a ton of. Uh, let, let's. I have it in front of me. So the color, obviously, with all those grapes, is a dark brooding wine. Um, yes, that's why it's black. The nose. It's the, the nose. Do you get any one of the grapes' characteristics on the nose more than the other? You know, what would you describe the nose on this as? Uh, no, you don't, because it is not your typical Cabernet, and it doesn't have the kind of earthy or bacony of the Syrah. No, it's, as a matter of fact, totally very Cabernet, but with them all back. It softens. It, it's like the pinch of salt that holds everything together. Right. And the mouthfeel is, it's a very, you know, full-bodied, mouth-filling wine. You would expect that from those grapes. Um, tell me on the palate, you know, what are some of your palate descriptors on this? Obviously dark fruits? Obviously dark fruit, but what Alan intends in Maybe because he's a guy, he gives you a little bit more punch in the palate. 
uh, he he raises the acidity a little bit. Uh, so it's really a very umami type of of wine. It really fills your palate. Not heavy. It's no, it's not, it's not it's not heavy, and the acidity makes it good with food. Exactly. And you said the perfect pairing would be to go back to those Colorado lollipops. Something grilled, something grilled. Some, throw something in the grill, even grilled vegetables. It, it, this will, it has the acidity to go through and with harmoniously. When uh, with will this anything. be available in the market? Uh, probably at the end of October. So, okay. So we're, we're close to that. Um, yes. I... Uh, I just drank a half a glass of it, and <laughs> it is delicious. It is not, you know, too heavy. Um, I think Napa sometimes, you know, gets caught up. It was a generation of, you know, over-extracted, fruity, jammy wines. You know, this yeah. has the balance, you know, of all of that. I like it that. It has to have it uh, to last. It uh, has to have harmony. It yeah. has to be something that is pleasurable that you enjoy, you don't have to pay attention to, you don't have to kind of, uh, you know, I like it too much thinking about it. It's, it's just more intuitive. I like it. Delia, we got to wrap up. I told you the hour would go quick. I could probably stay on with you for another hour. There's a bunch of things I didn't even get to. We could have talked about the wine more, but maybe that'll leave us for another time. Um, let me do a quick wrap up, and I want to get some info from you. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at the Grape nation on instagram at s ben ruby on twitter at ben ruby you could always use the hashtag the grape nation on both of those um, as i mentioned we will post delia's wine list answers on our social media sites um, i will also post a little more information on the 2017 um, black label that we just tasted um, delia if we want to get more information on your wines and you where do we go on the internet on social media viader.com that's v-i-a-d-e-r.com will bring you to the site a lot of background you can order wines and all that and I think the Instagram site is Viadere underscore Napa. Yes. So if you want to follow the winery, um, on, are you on Facebook? I think so. That's all Alan. It's yeah, his generation. Well, I, you know what? I'll look it up and I'll post it. All right. It's, it's his generation. Is that mine? Oh, stop with this. His generation <laughs> stuff. Um, all right. We got to go. Thank you to our guest, Delia Viadere. Um, thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.